Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm good and really looking forward to speaking with our guest. Yeah, I'm so excited to welcome Caroline Welch to the show today. Caroline is the CEO and co-founder with Dr. Dan Siegel of the Mindsight Institute, which is located in Santa Monica, California. Mindsight, a term coined by Dr. Siegel, is our human capacity to perceive the mind of the self and others. It's essentially a kind of focused attention that helps us observe the working of our own mind and helps get us off of the autopilot of ingrained behaviors and habitual responses. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you probably know that this process of psychological interoception, where we can observe our mind rather than being swept away by it, is, in my opinion, one of the most important skills a person can develop. And Caroline's mission as part of the Mindsight Institute is to make the science of well-being accessible for all. Her new book, The Gift of Presence, A Mindfulness Guide for Women, offers a scientifically inspired approach to a simple question. Is there a way for women to live with more calm amid the chaos? The Gift of Presence has won praise from endorsers ranging from Jack Kornfield to Goldie Hawn and draws on Caroline's 40 years of personal mindfulness practice. Before we get into our conversation today with Caroline, I'd like to remind you about our new Patreon account. We're now on Patreon, and you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you would like to support the show. For just the cost of a couple cups of coffee a month, you'll get access to expanded show notes that I put together for every episode, early interviews with our guest experts, the special Just One Thing episodes, the videos that we create for my conversations with Rick, and a wide variety of additional bonuses. Also, most importantly, you'll know that you're supporting us in continuing to produce this content, which we deeply appreciate. So, Carolyn, all that said, thanks for being here today. How are you doing? I'm great, and it's my honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so mm, happy to. You. Yeah, truly. Really looking forward to talking about this. And I think it makes sense to start just right there in the title. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges that you feel that women face that this book and presence in general was, in essence, a response to? One of the things that I think... I experience and that I observe the women around me experiencing is a somewhat steady state of overwhelm. Just too much to do. We can't feel like we can get ahead of it, so to speak. I thought that if I could take the concept of presence and mindfulness and show how it could infuse our days, it could be a great go-to for, um, for anyone, but for women in particular, because I'm looking at the challenges and the experiences of women. So reading through your book, which is beautifully written, by the way, with a really beautiful cover, reading through <laughs> your book... Uh, Really? <laughs> no, it's true. It's it's a funny aside, but um, when we were writing Resilient, so much effort went into choosing the darn cover art for the thing, and 27 drafts of images later. So speaking from that perspective, it's like a an underappreciatedly hard part of putting a book together is choosing what goes on the cover. That's right. You can judge a book by its cover, actually, <laughs> it sometimes. It turns out you can. Yeah, at least sometimes. And your your cover is soothing. It has pictures of waves. It's very nice. Anyway, reading through it, uh, it's chock full of co good content, a lot of science, a lot of stories, and a lot of suggestions. I had to ask you kind of maybe a little bit of a provocative question. As a man, 
I found much in the book that was perfectly applicable to me. And so I wondered uh, what, for you, was the aspect of this book that was, forgive the expression, particularly you know, womanized, woman-relevant? Like, how do you think about that, distinct from the ways in which the content in your book is relevant for men? I appreciate that question. And I think the title does uh, bring to our minds that question. So I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk about it. I'm not trying to say that women need mindfulness more or that there's some brand of mindfulness that will work better for women or men. But what I thought in observing my own life and some of the chaos I experienced if I could make some of the informal mindfulness practices that I had or that I observed others having, I could offer something that isn't currently available. When I run workshops for women, there are always several men in the room, and I'm, of course, very happy with that, and they come for different reasons. They come to understand their life partners better. They come to understand their students better. And so that is a very exciting aspect that I've been able to observe. A little bit of an aside, you know, as, as you may know, my very first book, which came out in 2002, which seems like 50 years ago somehow, but anyway, was called Mother Nurture, A Mother's Guide to Health in Body, Mind, and Intimate Relationships. And so while as a man coming of age really in the 60s and 70s, the rise of the feminist movement and so forth, I had some natural supportiveness in that area and also interest in it. Reading through the research for that book was really eye-opening for me. And to name a few things that I'm sure you're aware of, in the average American family in which a couple, a heterosexual couple is raising children, the woman is on task typically about 20 hours a week more than her male partner is even if she's also drawing a paycheck. There's also research that shows that in families, if you think about the load, so there's the task load, the stress load, and the executive load, even if they are an egalitarian family in which they're actually sharing the task load equally in reasonable ways, very commonly the woman is doing tasks that are more stressful. She's carrying more of the stress load, like settling quarrels between siblings, which are quite stressful. I can say from some experience, raising <laughs> two kids, one of whom is sitting next to me here. And the other is the executive responsibility late at night. Yeah. I remember when our daughter had ear infections when she mm. was very little. I had an internal checklist. I knew we had done everything we possibly could, and I rolled over and fell asleep while Jan was lying awake all night long, You know, just penetrated with worry. So I think there are very reasonable ways in which through certainly socialization and culture, uh, that women face unique challenges as a generalization and also in terms of the internal social socialization about putting the needs of others first and, and not daring to tune into themselves. There are ways in which mindfulness is really, really useful for all that. And so I just wanted to kind of set that up as a framing question. Are there any particular challenges that women face as a generalization? Some men may face them as well, but as a generalization, uh, for whom, for which rather, you think that mindfulness is particularly useful? I think we could start with one of the things that you just mentioned, and that is that in even seemingly egalitarian households, we still find even today the data will confirm that women do the worry work 
one partner, uh, the dads may be taking the kids to the dentist, but it's the moms who are keeping the schedules in mind mm -hmm. or who are registering for the camps or making sure that the kids have their vaccines. And even if women are working full-time outside of the home, they have 10 to 15 hours of running the household and then another 10 to 15 of running the lives of the children. So that's, that's unique. I think it's changing. I think the role of presence in changing that is to first recognize what's going on. With the cultural expectations, and sometimes it's just the demands. I interviewed over 100 women for my book. And in many cases, as the years unfold and families arrive and very demanding jobs arrive for both partners in the household, it does become very difficult to keep things egalitarian. Mindfulness can be especially helpful because if we can appreciate even a breath that we could take that could recenter us, for example, when I come home from a busy day at work, just being present or mindful of the feel of your hand on the front door knob and kind of resetting yourself like, okay, now moving from my hectic work mode to my home mode, those things can be very useful and powerful for us. They're very small changes that can make a big difference. So speaking of that a little bit, you relate to these kind of three big overarching themes throughout the book, uh, one of which is pivoting. And what you're describing there in that moment of putting the hand on the doorknob, moving from a work mode to a home mode, that is, in essence, a little baby pivot, if you want to kind of think about it a certain sort of way. In the book, you frame it much more in the uh, broader scope of life, moving from one job to another, one form of relating to another, whatever it might be. And we were kind of talking about this a little bit before we started uh, this interview and, and while we were thinking about kind of what we wanted to talk about today. And one of the things that Rick raised that I thought was really interesting was the idea of ways in which there can be social culturalization around the idea of making changes like that, that women may not be as kind of acculturated into. And so I thought it was interesting that you named pivoting. Sort of permitted to make a pivot, in other words, rather than just walking lockstep down the rules that society has created for them. Sure, absolutely. That's like yeah. one kind of example of that yeah. sort of thing. So I was wondering why you chose pivoting as one of these three key elements to uh, hone in on, and why you just thought that that was particularly relevant. I'm happy to have a chance to talk about pivoting because there were many P words competing for these <laughs> positions uh, to be one of the three Ps. Pivoting was on the list from the beginning and it stayed on the list. It started from a place of my observing uh, in some of the interviews and what I saw around me, our reluctance to make change. And of course, life is change. So if there's one thing that it can where we need support, it's in being able to make pivots. 
And Forrest, you just mentioned something about, you know, a small pivot, but I'm talking about a grander pivot, if you will. I'm talking not about a crisis pivot where, of course, you have to go to the ER. We're all hopefully pretty good in those situations. Where we have challenges is when I is in what I call proactive pivoting. Mm. Because mostly as humans, we like our routines and we like what we have in place. And we also have a, uh, as humans, a neural aversion to making a change unless we perceive it to be twice as positive as our current situation. Mm, mm -hmm. So I thought to the extent that I can empower women to have the courage to pivot, uh, that would be very useful. The other thing uh, that pivoting offers is the concept as in basketball, you're swiveling, you're not completely uprooting yourself. We all have many different skills, experiences, resources, and relationships. And so typically when we're making a change, even a big change, even a career change, other parts of our life are still in place. And we still have friendships, experiences, and other things that can remain there to support us. So hopefully the change can in that way not feel so dramatic or so daunting that we actually become paralyzed or put off something that would it would behoove us to move forward with sooner rather than later. And presence is something that can allow us to have a recognition of those additional resources that are present in our lives. That's right. And, and this might be a good time just to interject that presence is the foundation of the three Ps. Presence infuses every one of them and provides the basis because we have to have presence and have mindful awareness in order to have our purpose and find it and live aligned with it, to know if it is a time for pivoting or not, and to also be pacing ourselves. I wondered if you could just walk us through an example, maybe even a personal one, uh, in which you or perhaps someone else you know was moving through pivoting and drew upon mindful presence as an important resource that enabled and supported pivoting. Have you ever had a situation where you waited too long uh, to make a pivot and it took mindfulness finally to help you realize that it was time to make a pivot? Yes, I think there have been a couple of times in my life where I might have done some proactive pivoting. <laughs> I know when I was a corporate litigator, which is a special part of the law, it's a um, very time-consuming part to say that, there were a couple of times when I was in law departments that may not have been the best match for me. And it would have been better for me and my mental health to have made a decision earlier. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we get so consumed by the busyness of our lives that we can't even take, or at least we think we can't take those times to reflect and consider whether we do need to be making some kind of major change in our lives. So to uh, make a minor pivot inside of our conversation here, uh, I've, I'm kind of compelled to ask sort of a bit of a personal question around this, which is that you've had 
whatever it is, 40 years, 35 years of like pretty significant mindfulness and experience. Uh, and you give a number of examples of your personal history. Uh, it's spending time in Japan and working with people there, including, as you said, as a litigator and all of that. So you have a lot of personal experience inside of this. And you've been in a lot of circles and often a lot of the kind of particularly back in the day, more traditional mindfulness meditation or whatever it might be, uh, non-secular or secular circles were quite male dominated. Uh, a lot of male teachers, a lot of uh, masculine approaches to these kinds of problems, whatever you want to kind of frame it as. So maybe based off of that, just a, a curiosity I've had when I've been thinking about this and the idea of presence for for men versus women to the extent to which those words are even useful at all. Do you think that there is a way that you experience mindfulness that is fundamentally different from the way that I, Forrest, as a uh, biological male and as a male-identifying individual, experience mindfulness? Or do you think it's kind of all the same soup for all of us? Knowing, of course, that this is kind of an existential question and there may not actually be a real way to determine the answer to it. Well, Forrest, you're going for it. Uh, All right, Caroline. <laughs> well, you're a lawyer. I don't know. Maybe you're... yes, maybe no. I don't... It's okay. The, it, no is a perfectly acceptable answer. It's just, you know, I think it's a natural question. I would say there's a different soup for all of us. Hmm. No matter how you identify and no matter uh, where you are in the world, I think it's very unique to each individual. It's true that my my first exposure to what is formal meditation started in Japan. And it started in a temple. And all of the monks resident in that temple are male. And perhaps it's because I didn't speak Japanese when I, I learned meditation there. Uh, at the beginning, I simply followed what I was seeing around mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And as an English teacher in Japan for uh, engineers and other uh, professionals, I just found the, the, uh, the peace and the clarity that I could enjoy after visiting the um, temple on the weekends. I just found that very useful. So I didn't perceive it to be, uh, I didn't see it along gender lines. Mm -hmm. So to push on it, though, I'm thinking of two things here. Uh, first, I'm thinking about the, the movement in Western mindfulness circles, especially more formally Western Buddhist circles, a very strong movement from women to have more women teachers and to acknowledge more female voices in the lineage and history of Buddhism. Part of this movement, I've seen it as being both a matter of equity in terms of leadership roles and influence, just equity in its own right. But I've also heard women say that for them, they just feel more understood and they feel more touched when they're tuning into the presentation of a woman teacher in the front of the room who might be talking about something, let's say, universal, perhaps, the universal qualities in the experience of mindfulness. And yet that teacher, she, is doing it in a way, for whatever reasons, that reaches more the heart, 
the innermost being uh, of the woman who's listening. People will often say things like, well, men tend to teach abstractly. It feels drier. It's logical. They've got the lists. They've got the factors. They've got that down. But when there's a woman in the front of the room, to generalize, you know, I feel like she's speaking more from her heart, from her body, from her soul. And my heart and my body and my soul are more touched along the way. It's a it's a difficult question, but I think we all like to see in front of us persons whom we can imagine being and that we resonate uh, with those. Um, for example, when you, you mentioned that there are women who say they resonate more with a female identified teacher, um, I think that's 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 valid, definitely, and it may or may not be true for all of us. I would also add that I think even if we look at corporate America, it's not just in the um, our religious circles or in our meditation centers where we're trying very hard to bring in more women and more persons of color and more diverse leadership. This is something that I think is a priority for all of yeah. us. There is a beauty and a resonance there when the leaders and the persons in front of you or the teachers are ones to whom you can relate. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a Zen saying, leave nothing out. And I often think about the ways in which we always must leave some things out, but we can not leave out that we're going to leave things out and keep thinking about the people that we're leaving out, the perspectives, the approaches, the tone, the ways of knowing and learning that we're leaving out. To um, return to something that you mentioned earlier, you shared about 100 stories from different people. Um, were there any that have particularly stuck with you? So many did. One of them that embodied a lot of things, a lot of the things, including the three Ps that I was talking about, uh, is the story of Marie Suruda, who has since passed away. Um, she was in her mid-80s when I interviewed her. But um, she was a second-generation Japanese-American born in California, interned during World War II, mm. and ha came from a large family uh, eight siblings, and at the time that World War II broke out, half of her family was in Japan visiting grandparents and half was in California. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the war, without cell phones and without the internet, she made it her business to go to Japan thinking that her family was going to settle there uh, and not remain in the country that had interned them. Mm -hmm. And when she got to Japan, she found out that her sisters were en route back to California. So her world was upside down, and she found herself in a country where she didn't belong. Mm -hmm. I mean, she looked Japanese, but she didn't know anything about Japan, and she was pretty much rejected. Mm -hmm. And the story, I mean, her powerful story of how she finally fit in and became an English teacher and found her way uh, really stuck with me um, that she had to be very present. There were cultural expectations in Japan but she couldn't meet them. And so she had to be very much um, her own person and, and peel off those mm -hmm. expectations. 
So in the book, you explore a wide variety of skills and tactics and um, strategies internally that people can have to apply presence in a variety of different ways throughout their life. To kind of ask the same question to a certain extent, when you were doing the research that went into this book and kind of looking through all of the different ways that people can interact with their mind, were there any, again, that struck you as just particularly overarching and powerful as individual tactics that people can use throughout their day? I know, of course, mindsight and interoception is you know, a big one for you, but whether it's under that umbrella or as something else uniquely. Well, I would say there, there are several things I tried to draw upon what we know from science and bring that forward like um, a simple example of multitasking. I think a lot of us think that's our survival tool and that's how we can do what we do. At the same time, I think it's important to realize that if we're doing deep work or work that requires our attention, our brains really don't multitask or work on multiple tracks simultaneously. Mm. We're going, moving quickly from thing to thing, and our working memory can only contain three to five things. Mm. So I often find myself when I'm trying to multitask and send email and look at something, and I just bring myself back to the fact that that really isn't going to serve me well in the long run. I'm not going to remember what I did, and I should just be a little more intentional about mm. it. So that's one simple example of trying to empower myself by bringing that to mind when I do find myself multitasking. Yeah, absolutely. So just to take that as an example really quick here, you're you're in the flow, you're at your computer, five things are happening, there are three buzzers going off, whatever it might be. How do you or how did you build the habit in yourself of noticing that you were being swept along by all of this multitasking so you could apply presence to it? The habit is still being built. <laughs> Absolutely, of course, yeah. <laughs> but usually uh, the wake-up calls are in the form of, did I just send that email? Wait, I thought I did that. Or mm -hmm. something that comes to my attention that causes me to have to have a look and try to reconstruct what is going on. I think that's a great uh, example of what the experience can be like of when mindfulness sort of falls to the side. Uh, I know, Dad, you have this great thing about uh, recollectedness versus forgetfulness, you know, where like mindfulness is you're recollected, you're collected. So what's the opposite of that, right? It's forgetfulness. So if you're having a- And being scattered and dispersed. Yeah, as you're saying with multitasking. So if you're having this discrete experience of being scattered and dispersed, and did I send the email or didn't I? Well, you're probably not being very mindful in that moment. So I think that it's a- a good recommendation that I'm sure many people resonate with. One of my favorite themes in your book, pace and pacing. And in the middle of a busy day, let's say, uh, deliberately claiming for oneself the right to slow it down or to tell the world, right now, pause. You go on pause. I'm going to push the whole button for you, world. And meanwhile, I'm going to walk to the beach or I'm going to step outside and just look at the sky for a few minutes here. So I wondered if you could talk more about what you mean by pacing and maybe speak to how mindfulness assists healthy pacing. Pacing has two facets. The first one is pace as in how quickly do we move through our days. And I think we forget sometimes how much control we do have over our pace. 
And as you're just suggesting, we can walk out and see the sunset often, but we lose track of the fact that we can do that. And we're all doing probably uh, many things at once. So it's easy to lose track of that. But presence or being mindful really comes into play there to just remind ourselves, wait a minute, I, today I could really do that and to just go and do it. And the second aspect of pacing is realizing that we are living longer than ever before. Mm. And hopefully, thanks to longer what um, Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Apple call health spans, we have longer health spans. And some of us have had multiple careers and we have time in our lives so that the do it all, all at once mentality that drove me for many years and I think still drives many of us, we can uh, start to lift away from that a bit and just have a good look, again, thanks to presence and mindful awareness, what life chapter am I in right now? And is this a time for me to be focusing on what aspect of, of my life? Mm. I think that's a great thought. And to kind of pick up a certain thread of it, uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will probably know that a interest of mine is death and dying and the experience of people who are going through that process and what we can learn about that transitional moment in a person's life, that kind of ultimate moment. And one of the sections of your book that I found particularly interesting, honestly, that it was kind of like in there at all and, you know, and that you were really clearly thoughtful about the way that you approached it is that there was a section of, I believe it was like five lessons that we can learn from uh, people who are at the end of their lives. And I feel compelled to ask because of my personal interest, when you were working on that section of the book and when you were really thinking about that question, was there anything in particular that you learned that influenced the way that you're living now? Um, I was, like you, I'm really interested in death. And so when I found a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying mm -hmm. from someone who'd worked for decades with persons who were dying, I, of course, wanted to know those. And the one in the five that surprised me was the regret about not keeping in touch with friends. Mm. And that, that struck me because I think there were periods in my own life when I thought friends were kind of a luxury. For example, when I was working full-time and my kids were young, my friends weren't really um, so much a part of my life because I was so consumed by other things. Also, I think given how mobile many of us are, it's quite easy to lose track of friends. Of course, we have the internet and we can be in touch, but to really pick up the phone and talk to our dear friends or to keep in touch with them, that does take effort. And I was surprised and happy to see it on a list of the top five regrets of the dying. And it has caused me to really treasure my friends and really make a point of being in touch with friends, mm -hmm. especially ones whom I've known for 40 or 50 or even 60 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I 
you know, we, you know, we're at that point. I'm at that point. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say that to you, Forrest. Yeah, Forrest is not yet at that point. On it, working yeah. on it. We're trying, yeah. hopefully. we're trying to keep him alive for the next 30 years. I know, years. seriously, if, if, that's if right. we got there, yeah. assumptively. Right. But uh, no, I, I think that's truly a lovely and like heartfelt reflection. And to me, I would say probably the same, that when I read through that list, that was the one that I hadn't necessarily heard before in that kind of way. And uh, it definitely caused me to do a little reflecting in terms of my own behavior. So as we come to the end here, there's a final question that we like to ask everybody who comes on the show. And it's simply that if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a child or a young adult, maybe going through the, uh, the, the pit that is seventh grade or whatever it was for you personally, what would you want to say to that person? I'd say, hey, Caroline. You're awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be fine. What I didn't know when I was 12 in seventh grade, because I was deep into a clique in a grade school, I was in the same school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I was in, I grew up on a dairy farm. And the group, the groups that were formed there were city kids and farm kids. And I, as a farm girl, felt as kind of a second-class citizen and less than. And I think whatever our, our backgrounds are, um, there are in-groups and out-groups, and we are, of course, in grade school and junior high school. But the sooner that I could have known that or heard that, and the sooner that our youth can hear that and know that, uh, the better. I think that's great. That's a wonderful note to leave people with at the end here. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, you, Caroline. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Caroline Welch, the author of the new book, The Gift of Presence. The Gift of Presence is now available, and if you're interested in learning more about the book, you can find it through the link in the description of today's episode. I'd also like to remind you about Dr. Rick Hansen's new book, Neurodharma, which is currently available for pre-order. And I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast as well. It is truly a fantastic read, and I really hope that you'll check it out. Also, I'd like to remind you about our new Patreon account. If you'd like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. There'll be a link to that in the show notes of today's episode as well, so a lot of links today. And for the price of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and continue to enable us in producing this content. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it as well if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, tell a friend about it. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.